I want to begin our time with a question. Have you ever been part of a victory celebration in some measure, some fashion? Just raise your hand. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty common in our culture. In high school, our football team won the first state title in school history. And my twin brother scored the winning touchdown in overtime. So it, it was just amazing. So proud of him. And, and it was just, uh, just a very exciting time. And when, when we were on our way back from the, the host city where the championship was held, it was a few hours away. We came into the city where our high school was. And all of a sudden, the bus was directed into a Walmart parking lot. And there were a bunch of police cars with their lights on. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, no, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> uh, what did we do? Uh, we didn't do anything wrong. But uh, we quickly noticed that they uh, formed into a single line, and they wanted to give us a police escort all the way back to our high school to honor the victory that was ours and, and to have a celebration. It was really, really memorable. Just this week on the news, you may have uh, saw uh, the story about the New England Patriots who recently, uh, they, they visited the White House for their ongoing victory celebration of the Super Bowl uh, that took place back on February 5th. And this was a part, again, of their, their ongoing celebration and a sports tradition as their achievement was recognized and celebrated by the President of the United States. This is part of life. Not just in the sports world, but all of life. We celebrate victories and achievements that are worthy of recognition. And we do our best to honor those who made the victory possible. The greatest victory that has ever taken place is Christ's victory over the curse of sin and death. Amen? It is. It is an eternal victory with eternal consequences. And this is undisputed by everyone who truly understands all that took place through his life, his death, and resurrection. Considering the impact on our lives and the magnitude of Christ's victory, what should our victory celebration look like? Now that Christ rose and ascended, are there any practical exhortations in lieu of Christ's victory for us? Does our future hope function merely as a, a pie in the sky as we just look up hopeful in his return, contemplating when it's going to happen? Or does the Lord desire that our victory celebration in Christ have practical benefit for our day-to-day -day lives? I submit to you that the latter is the case. And the Apostle Paul records a powerful verse to exhort us at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I invite you to turn to if you're not already there. 1 Corinthians, as many of you already know, is a letter of correction. And it was written to the church in Corinth, which had a host of problems. There were divisions and factions in the church. Sin was being tolerated. And worldly practices were impacting their worship to the point where incest prostitution, and drunkenness all had to be addressed by the Apostle Paul. Perhaps even more concerning were the false doctrines that were creeping in, including teaching that denied the bodily resurrection of Christ 
and believers. And thus Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to address it. Chapter 15 is commonly referred to as the resurrection chapter because the words raised or resurrection are mentioned some 15 times in the chapter. Time's not going to permit us to read the entire chapter, yet we will read verses 50 through 58 before we devote our attention exclusively to verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 says this in the New American Standard. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin of the, of the law is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 58, which will be our focus in our study today. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Pray with me as we ask God to bless our study. Our Father, we come to you again as needy children asking that you would encourage us and bless our study of your word. We thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection, which we learned last week is the linchpin of our hope as we continue to celebrate. Allow us to see the practical implications of our hope in Christ. Use your word to challenge us and transform us to become strengthened in our faith and to abound in the work of the ministry. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, you may have anticipated us returning to the gospel of Mark now that Resurrection Sunday had passed and I I ventured out from Mark. But we're going to continue... Um, outside of Mark for a couple different reasons. First, we just celebrated Christ's death on Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday, and we find ourselves currently in our study of Mark 11 in the Passion Week. So I thought it would be a little anticlimactic for us to rewind the tape and go back. Secondly, I wanted to seize an opportunity to focus on another resurrection passage that will inspire us even more practically in our walks. Last Sunday, the Apostle Peter allowed us to see the theological implications as to how the resurrection serves as our linchpin of hope. We are born again to a new life. We're born again to a living hope, a heavenly inheritance, and it is all protected by the power of God, as 1 Peter 1, 3-5 revealed. 
Today we're going to hear from the Apostle Paul who provides three exhortations as we continue our victory celebration in Christ. And it provides an answer to the infamous Bible study question. So what? So what? What what does it mean? Yes, Christ defeated the curse of sin and death through the resurrection. And I have applied the truth of the gospel to my soul. But, but now what? Where do we go from here? Applied personally, it sounds something like this. I've confessed that I am a guilty sinner. I've confessed that there are none righteous, absolutely none righteous, but God alone. And that only Christ, in Christ, can I stand in God's presence justified. I have repented of my unbelief. I have completely trusted in Christ alone as my sin bearer and Lord who defeated the curse of sin and did everything through the atoning work of the cross through his death. And the victory of his resurrection is mine. It's mine. So now what? Paul's going to answer this question in verse 58 as he did for the Corinthians. And he starts out with, therefore. Therefore what? As we look back at verse 57, Paul offers thanks to God for the victory won through Christ and the salvific benefits of the resurrection. And the Corinthians would have been familiar with songs of victory celebrating the feats of athletes at the Greek games that took that took place in Corinth. Victory celebrations historically have always been practice. But Paul doesn't celebrate the victory of Christians over death. It is God's victory, a victory in which all believers are graciously allowed to share in. And thus in verse 57, Paul writes, God who gives to us is literally what it's saying, revealing that Paul understands the victory over death to be God's. A victory that redeems us from our sins, according to what he wrote earlier in verse 3. Because of the resurrection, he is now a life-giving spirit, according to verse 45. And the victory is applied to us. Now here come the practical exhortations. And the first exhortation comes at the beginning of verse 58, when Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable. It's easy for us to gloss over how Paul addresses the Corinthian believers as my beloved brethren. He he usually, we see him use brethren uh, quite a bit in the 13 New Testament epistles that Paul wrote. But this is unique in that he says, my beloved, beloved, can I say that word right? Beloved brethren. And this is a, a timely address of affection as he approaches the end of this letter. Paul has just taken them to the woodshed spiritually in the opening 11 chapters, and he's shared some hard truths and instruction dealing with their worldly conduct that involved carnal living and immorality, lawsuits and marital perversion, idolatry, and taking communion in an unworthy manner. 
And through it all, Paul still wants them to know that he loves them. And that he still considered them spiritually family, as as brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes being in God's family means addressing hard issues. But we must never lose sight of love, amen? We must never lose sight of love. So much so that it was just a couple chapters earlier where Paul was led by the Spirit to include instruction on what the greatest spiritual gift was, love before he defines it in verses four through seven. Agape love is patient and kind. It doesn't boast or brag or exalt self. It isn't selfish or self-serving, but others-focused. It endures all things. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs suffered. It believes the best about others. It remains hopeful. And yes, it is also willing to speak the truth, but in love. In love. When a brother or sister in Christ has offended you or appears to be in sin, does your love for them compel you to go to them? Or is it something else? Is it pride that wants to to surface and point out the reality of what's taken place? Parents, when you shepherd and instruct the heart of your child, is it rooted in your love for them? Or is it in your feelings of impatience or disruption or disappointment? You guys don't know how often I'm preaching to my own heart. And I am. I am. What is it rooted in? There's a principle for us right here in Paul's opening address worth noting. And I know my heart is challenged by it and perhaps I'm not alone. What command does he now share? It is the command to be, followed by two adjectives. Be steadfast and be immovable, which are closely linked together in meaning. The word steadfast also means to be seated, settled, or firmly situated, while the word immovable can also mean unshaken, steady, motionless, or unwavering. Do you see the overlap? Yeah, it's there. Both terms are connected to our faith, and they remind us that we are to be rooted and grounded in what we believe and hold true. The Apostle Paul actually used these two words together in another verse, in Colossians 1.23. You don't have to turn there, but definitely jot it in your notes and listen to what he wrote. Continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. The hope of the gospel is the resurrection and the newness of life that it brings. And we are to be seated firmly and immovable when it comes to our gospel convictions. If we have no hope and we're not grounded in our convictions, we might waver in our faith and wander off after the things of this world. 
If this life doesn't matter, and if you think about it, if there are no eternal ramifications for our actions, then it becomes easier to stray away. But when our hope is real, it causes us to be steadfast and stable in our faith and in our walks. And throughout history, there have been men and women of God who have stood up firmly for the gospel. The Apostle Paul, we know, stood up and opposed Peter to his face firmly in the book of Galatians as he was connecting with the Judaizers who were allowing a works righteousness aspect of their Pharisaical past to come back in and, and, and choke out the true biblical gospel. And this lineage of faith has run throughout the first century church all the way to the reformers in the 1500s. Most notable was Martin Luther, and we're celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation. He stood before the imperial diet of worms as both the church and emperor wanted Luther to recant on his teachings on justification through faith while he was there. And this led to Luther's infamous response when he said, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain sense, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And the infamous saying, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, is a synopsis of that. There's no um, recollection of, of, of Luther saying those direct words, but the, the quote I just read to you is where it derives from. And it reflects the strength of faith and conviction that Paul is speaking of here at the beginning of verse 58. Be steadfast and immovable in your faith. We must not allow our faith to be compromised in the sea of consensus and ecumenicalism. Buddha, Muhammad, Scientology, Mormonism, or any other cultic religion that rejects Jesus Christ and the true biblical gospel leads people to the broad road of condemnation to an eternity without God. Not very popular to say these days, right? We don't have to look very far for our application. And there is no other way to be reconciled to God. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. The exclusivity of Christ and the gospel is our battle cry. It is our victory celebration, what does your victory celebration in Christ look like in your walk, in my walk? Do your coworkers, your friends at the gym, your, your fellow students, do they know about the victory that is yours in Christ? Are you taking a stand for your faith? Or does the fear of man cause you to shy away from gospel opportunities? Perhaps this quote by Greek scholar Clarence Jordan will help as it addresses our fears. 
He says, we cannot have faith until we understand this aspect of fear, that fear will be overactive in us so long as it sees anywhere on the horizon the specter of death or uncertainty. If we are going to be triumphant over fear, we must have an assurance of triumph over death. The clue, then, to the triumphant faith of the early Christians lies in the power of the resurrection. They did not go everywhere preaching the ethics of Jesus. They went everywhere preaching that this Jesus whom you slew, God has raised him from the dead. Death had lost its sting. The grave had lost its victory. Fear no longer was overactive in them, and they could go everywhere saying, we must obey God rather than men. Kill this old body if you will. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Applying a later hymn to the past. It was when Christ was raised triumphant over death that fear could be put back into its proper place and faith could shine forth radiantly and powerfully. And all God's people said, Amen. Right? It's true. And as our victory celebration continues, we have to cling to it in such a way that it overcomes our fears. And if you think about it, and you process just even for what is is fearful for you personally, and if you think about it rationally, and you dissect it, and you put it under the microscope, oftentimes there's really no reason to be afraid, is there? There, there really isn't. There isn't. And we can't allow our fears to, to overcome us, but we must overcome what? Our fears for Jesus Christ and the sake of the gospel. Well, there's a second exhortation that Paul gives us, and it's this. Abound continuously in the work of the ministry. I just realized that kind of rhymes. Okay, it's all good though. Microphone check, please. No, okay. Abound continuously in the work of the ministry. And Paul said it this way. Look at the middle of verse 58. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. The verb translated abounding or excelling, depending on your your English translation, is a present active participle which is connected to the imperative to be, which with another word makes it emphatic in the Greek. Translated literally, it would sound something like this, at all times continuously abound or excel in the work of the Lord. This verb carries the idea of exceeding the requirements or going above and beyond. In Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, this word speaks of God lavishing on us the riches of his grace. God went above and beyond. He, he lavished upon us the riches of his gra- grace. He, he completely overdid, overdid it, especially to those who were worthy of nothing. And this should encourage us to go above and beyond in our service for him to whom we owe everything. John MacArthur had this to say. What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. 
How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of this world? How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification, encouragement, and help of every sort? What can a Christian say? I've served my time. I've done my part. Let others do the work now. Reasonable rest is important and necessary. But if we err, Paul is saying it should be on the side of doing more work for the Lord, not less. Leisure and relaxation are two great modern idols to which many Christians seem quite willing to bow down. In proper proportion, recreation and diversions can help restore our energy and increase our effectiveness, but they can also easily become ends in themselves, demanding more and more of our attention, concern, time, and energy. More than one believer has relaxed and hobbied himself completely out of the work of the Lord. That's a, a direct quote from John MacArthur. That's what that is. And, there's, and, and, and it really hits home. I think if you're like me, you appreciate the balanced perspective that he has. He's not condemning leisure. He's not judging those who take part in recreation. But he hits the nail on the head when talking about how idolatrous leisure and relaxation has come in our American culture. And we see that, especially right here in Southern California, the home of more theme parks and entertainment than any other place on the planet, I think. I don't know. Somebody can research that for me and let me know. Make sure. One of. Okay, we'll just go there. We'll qualify it. One of. And the question we all have to ask ourselves honestly is, are we drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture? Are we? You have to ask your heart that question. And this is why, my friends, we need the body of Christ. We need each other desperately to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24. We need accountability to make sure that idols of leisure and on the other side, the work of the world isn't consuming our lives to the extent that the, the, the work of the Lord is being compromised or squeezed out of our life. For our elder retreat, um, a, a friend had given me some golf balls. I don't golf. I'm a terrible golfer. You let me drive the cart, I'm a happy man. I do enjoy that. But, yeah, just gave me some, some golf balls and I expressed appreciation, but then now I'm, I was looking to, to give them away. And... Um, for the elders' retreat, I thought, oh, this would be nice. You know, usually get a little care pack or something for the elders, just an expression of gratitude for the, for the, the, the lay elders. And, and um, I asked Huey, I said, um, does anyone on our team golf? And he was like, no, who's got time for golf? Like, like really. And, and again, I hope you know, I, I've golfed in the past. I've enjoyed it one or two times. <laughs> That's about it. 
But I think you know where I'm going with this. There's, there's, that, that, that's a great opportunity for recreation. But on the other side, it's, it, it, it's, it's incredibly dangerous that we can get drawn in and sucked into it that we can want to go out and golf 18 holes every day of the week or every single weekend. And not only is it a, a time drain, but it's a financial drain. It's not a cheap sport. And so I have some really nice golf balls. And for anyone who golfs, you can please come talk to me after the service. I'll gladly bless you with a nice case of golf balls. Please, please come see me. But you get the point. And we need to ask ourselves spiritually diagnostic questions in, in, in light of this. And, and, and I just put some together. We put them up on the PowerPoint. Paul, if you would uh, go ahead and pull those up. And for those taking notes, if you want to jot them down or if I can post them in an email or on Facebook at a later point. In what ways have idols of leisure and recreation had a negative impact on my walk with the Lord? You need to think about that. What might the Lord have me change? Again, good question. How am I excelling in the work of the ministry? And I, I look out upon our church and I see some of the progress that, you know, I, I hear the testimonies of, of guys who, you know, um, th- they came and they served as an usher at one point in time when they initially got involved with the church and now they're faithfully serving as care group leaders. And it's just amazing to see the progression that the, that the Lord has allowed to take place in their life. In what practical ways can I make ministry an even greater priority? Ooh, here's a good one. Do I serve sacrificially or do I only serve when it's convenient? Last question. Have I ever approached a ministry leader at the church? Have you ever approached anyone in Rock or Roots Ministry or your care group leader or anyone on the elder team and asked if there was a specific way that you could serve or how you could be more helpful in the church? Good question to ask. Not condemning questions. Spiritually diagnostic questions so that we can assess whether we are truly abounding or excelling in the work of the Lord. Most of you know that we have the State of the Church meeting right right after this service. And I want you to know that our elder team is greatly encouraged by the number of people that we see serving so faithfully in our midst. It's, it's remarkable. God's work and what he's doing in your lives, in you and through you, impacting the children, impacting the youth, making a difference in your care groups. We celebrate how the Lord is working. Yet we also want to explore the areas of weakness in the body and consider how we can apply this verse, apply uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, as Paul wrote, a spiritually healthy church in Thessalonica and encourage them to excel still more. We realize that as a spiritually healthy church and a growing church, there's going to be more opportunities to serve and more needs that need to be met. And again, that's in any number of our ministries, whether your desire to work with children, your desire to work with youth, your desire to disciple adults. There are always ways for us to abound and excel still more. Amen? Amen. I recently heard that there were a group of sisters in the church 
who are going through John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And that is what Paul is talking about here in verse 58. That is the mindset that we want to encourage and and celebrate everyone to have. And the title says it all. Don't waste your life. Abound continuously in the work of the ministry. Well, there's a third and final exhortation as we continue our victory celebration in Christ, and it's this. Know that your labor isn't in vain. That's what Paul says directly at the end of the verse. Our victory celebration in Christ, it gives us confidence. Paul exhorts us to know that our work for Jesus matters. It isn't worldly labor yielding only temporal consequences, but rather our labor and toil in the Lord yields eternal significance. What you do for him in his name is not in vain. It's not a waste of time. It's not an exercise of futility. And Paul uses this word vain four times in chapter 15, in verses 2, 10, 14, and 58. And the word literally means empty and carries the idea of being meaningless or lacking substance. There is no sacrifice, no struggle, no self-denial, no valley, no work that goes unnoticed in God's eyes. There isn't. And I've shared the, the verse before, but it's always worth, every time I go back and read it, I'm encouraged by it again. It never gets old when I read it. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. It matters to him. It does. Our victory celebration in Christ also gives us consolation. Sometimes the the road we walk is hard. Sometimes the burdens we carry are, are heavy. Sometimes the work we're called to do may seem difficult and exhausting. And I want you to see how Paul describes the ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And you have to see this. So if you'll turn there, I just we're going to look at a couple verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 4. And here Paul is writing again to the Corinthian believers, and in the context is commending the work of the ministry to them. And I want you to notice how brutally honest he is when he describes the ministry of God's servants. 2 Corinthians 6 Starting in verse 4, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, now listen to this, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumultuous conditions, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, 
in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul lays it out. And he doesn't hide it. He doesn't sugarcoat the challenges that we'll face in ministry. And he recognizes that there is a dichotomy that takes place within the human heart and in our emotions when it comes to serving in the ministry. It's true. There are some great joys. And we celebrate salvation. We celebrate victories over sin. We're greatly encouraged. But Paul here also reminds us of the difficulties and the challenges that we'll face. Yes, there's hope. I think we all agree and we know from personal experience that ministry is hard. And back in verse 58, Paul used the word labor. And this word means intense labor united with trouble and toil. It has the idea of work that results in pain and agony. Ministry is oftentimes marked by struggle and labor. All our moms in the house today can share and recall the labor that they experienced when their child or children were born. You don't ever forget that experience, do you? You don't. I remember, even we were blessed with four children. Many of you already know that. And outside of prayer, I remember feeling really helpless. I wish there was some way that I could could help my wife. I wish there was some way that I could alleviate the pain. I wish there was something outside of praying and pretending like I knew when to tell her to breathe. And the push and all that, which guys, don't worry about that. All of us fathers will let you know they help you with all that. Um, They really do. But the pain that was taking place, it was excruciating. And it can last for several hours. And some of you sisters even know of sisters who were in labor for uh, even over a day. And the trauma that a woman goes through when bearing a child is truly remarkable. And yes, I realize that there are some first-time expecting mothers in our audience, but this is going to encourage you. I promise you. Of all the moms that I have ever met over the course of my lifetime, do you know that I've never, ever heard a mother say, I would never go through that labor. I wish my child, I wish that child was never born. I've never heard that. Ever. 
Ever. Why? You know the answer. Moms, when, when, when that baby's born and you hear that first cry or you gain that first glimpse, the, the, the excruciating pain that you just went through, yeah, that's, to some degree it's still taking place too, right? It's not over yet. But yet you see and you get hope and you see the genuine amazement and the fruit of your labor that gave life and, and you, your heart is overwhelmed. And you grab a hold of that child and there's great emotion that's taking place for both husband and wife who experience the pain together. Although the wife in much greater fashion, for sure. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I realize that some of you in the room might be adopted, and perhaps you never knew your biological mom. And let me just say that some of the most courageous women in the world have been those women who recognized that they were not ready to be mothers, but they still chose to go through that labor knowing that they would one day give you up for adoption because they knew in their heart of hearts that it would be best for someone else to steward your life. They too join the list. They too know the pain of the labor. And oh, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, May this illustration grip our hearts and help us to see that though there are real labor pains united with trouble and toil, that all we go through now for the sake of the Lord will be worth it in the end. It will be worth it in the end. And allow me to conclude with a passage that serves as a tremendous Reminder and fuel as we continue our victory celebration in Christ to the very end. The writer of Hebrews shares these words in chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And the labor that is experienced in the birth process is certainly something, and and the suffering and the toil and the difficulty is something that we can relate to But how much more, how much more as we fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who endured the agonies of the cross, right? And as we pick up our cross daily and follow the one who serves As our ultimate example, let it be a reminder to us that ministry is marked by struggle and labor. It is an existence under the cross sustained by hope, which is based on the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And the reality of the future colors the reality of the present. And this is the reason why the Holy Spirit led Paul to such exhortations. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing your toil. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts continue to celebrate the victory that is ours in Christ as a result of the resurrection. Father, I thank you for the ways that you challenged my heart this week as I just reflected upon the exhortations that you had Paul share with the Corinthian believers. And in the same way that they impacted my heart, I pray that they impact those who heard this message today, that we would be immovable and steadfast, that our hope would be unwavering as it relates to our gospel convictions and how we live out and walk in newness of life. And we cling to you, Father. We know it's a work that you're doing in us and through us. And we know that you've ordained good works in advance that we get to walk in. And we plead with you that you would be helping us to to walk in those works faithfully. And that you would continue to allow us to have our hearts captured by the cross, captured by the resurrection, knowing that there's great weight and great substance. It all matters. It all matters. And even the ministry that we'll have a chance to talk about during State of the Church, during second hour, it all matters because it's centered on Christ and it's centered on the progression of the gospel in our lives. And so we pray that what you'll allow us to celebrate truly that this service and that this message would bleed over into our time, second hour, as we celebrate all that you're doing. And we ask, Father, and we pray united right now, intent on one purpose, that you would allow us to excel still more. That we would take ownership of where we're at And that we would look out into the horizon and look through the windshield of the opportunity that is before us, not the the rearview mirror of the past, but where you're taking us. And that you would encourage all of us to reach and to serve and to be a greater blessing to you and to each other. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.